Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly imagine, even the most obscure things, has its own history, like beetroots, saliva and snails. Do you know, I often get beetroots in my organic veg box and I love beetroots, but uh, we have white countertops and they stain everything. Uh, so it, it's dreadful. Or snails, <laughs> trails and whales, as mm. in the uh, the things in the sea. Males, fails and whales. <laughs> Not whales in the sea, but whales, the country, the nation, the great nation. Mm. Uh, and we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, not digressing in the slightest, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of dust is in fact all about the invention of the microscope, the mysterious deaths of Egyptologists. It's about America in the 1930s. It's about lost knowledge. And also it's about the Big Bang. Or that the history of break-ins is in fact all about Viking power politics. Mm, it mm. certainly is. Who that was a, knew? Who knew that? Great chapter in our Vikings book. James, out of all of those wonderful topics which have come out of your uh, vat of creativity, <laughs> I'm, I'm massively... Oh, beetroots is interesting. It's like, I don't think the plural of beetroot should be beetroots. It sounds like it should be something else. <laughs> beetroot. It should be beetroot. Probably. I don't know. I've, maybe. And, beets. Um, beets, maybe. And, uh, but saliva. Um, in this, this time of corona... Uh, I think we should do saliva. And uh, you said last week you wanted to do the history of patients, uh, yes. as in people about to be cured. So um, let's do, we're going to go back and do a couple of coronary ones in the coming weeks. We're going to do saliva for me, um, which, which is all about <laughs> spitting in speeches. And it's um, the history of saliva. And we're going to do patients for James. So that's, we'll do some nice well, ones of those coming up in the next couple of weeks. Do you know what saliva is really about? No, it's about, it's about, Seventeenth uh, century women sewing. Oh, that sounds because cool. when you when you um, when you take your thread, you um, lick your fingers to make a to make a sort of a, a pointy end that can go through the eye of a needle. And uh, very clever archaeologists and material culture people have recovered women's no. saliva from no. the 17th century. Yes way. How yes cool way, Sam. It's very cool. So I'm going to be going down that sort of slippery <laughs> salivary route. Well, I think. Um, everyone, you're probably wondering who uh, we will be. I will be talking to because you don't know who this disembodied headless voice is. <laughs> let, let me say that if history were a headless horseman, he would be that horse's earthly groom, gently leading him to the stable of research to be cared for and fed before being paraded for public appreciation and cheer. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. How are you? I'm good. Are thanks. you well? Really I feel good. like I've barely, I feel like I've barely seen you in recent months, man, uh, which it? is probably because I haven't. Uh, only on Zoom. Mm. Uh, the man not sitting opposite me because we are social distancing in these grimmest of days of lockdown. Well, let's just say, if he were a tyrannical monarch obsessed <laughs> with heads, chopping <laughs> them off left, right, and centre. He'd only be Henry VIII. <laughs> it's the truly wonderful friend of mine, uh, the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone, and thank you very much for my uh, tyrannical introduction. I like that. Yes. Um, we are doing 
the second episode on the history of heads. James and I have got a new system going where we, we're researching so much and we're enjoying, enjoying histories of the unexpected so much that we're, we're starting to find much more material than we actually need for a single podcast. So we're dividing them up into two. This is part two of our one on heads. In the first episode, we talked about figureheads. We talked about the uh, box in Plymouth, a, a new exhibition space, which has got these wonderful figureheads from uh, Devonport Royal Dockyard. We talked about heads of state. We talked about portraiture, particularly in relation to Tudors and art and three-dimensional busts as well. I know we also talked about lanes. <laughs> we did. Briefly. We're going to do lanes as well. We also talked about Christmas. Yes. Uh, I think it's only nine weeks to Christmas <laughs> now if you're if you're listening to this on the, uh, what would it be? Oh, well, maybe the first or second. Uh, what would, no, what are we? My eyesight is being terrible. Maybe you'll be listening to this from the 18th of October. Mm. Probably about nine weeks shopping time till Christmas. <laughs> I'm long. almost done. I'm almost done, Sam. That's ridiculous. Almost done. <laughs> it's not ridiculous. I also have a Christmas, a Christmas shopping slot. Oh, Yes. Well, we're going to um, be definitely embracing Christmas in the run up to Christmas over those short nine weeks. <laughs> right. So let's crack on with heads. James, where do you want to go with heads? Well, so last time we ended up when well, you were talking about Tudor portraits, I finished with something on the execution of Charles I. And I wanted to start with decapitation. Mm. Uh, beheading people so this is literally where you sever uh the the head from the body um and would you believe this is fatal <laughs> not, only, <laughs> not only in humans but also in animals uh it, it it's you know it's it lit quite literally is game over and it's a, it's a it's a practice being found throughout history uh there are various sort of forms it's used by the state to execute people it's used by vigilantes it's used you know very famously in the godfather uh by the mafia to intimidate people the head the horse's head found in the bed and there are various ways in which it can be achieved some of which are are more humane than others so a very very sharp sword uh that cleaves off a head in one fell swoop is you know, is is fairly humane, and the kinds of technologies that we see developing in the 18th century uh, around the the guillotine um, or the in in Germany they have a slightly sort of different thing, which is called uh, translates as falling axe, uh, a fallbeil, uh, which is a sort of te- bit bit like a sort of bit like the guillotine, but the idea there is that you have a very sharp blade and you're able to take somebody's head off. In, you know, very cleanly. Well, but by, also, a, by a machine. I mean, the whole machi- point about the guillotine is it's not yes. done by a person against another person. It's, it becomes automatic, doesn't it? It's literally a. It's literally automatic. Yeah. Um, but but other, otherwise, you'd you'd use an axe, a knife, a machete, a sword. Around the world today, you know, there the in the twentieth century, there have been all sorts of, you know, atrocious acts of ethnic cleansing um, that have, you know, that have. Um, you know, involve decapitating people. Um, you think about how terrorists, you know, threaten to decapitate people and then do so on on camera, um, and then use it for propaganda purposes. Um, it's something that, as a as a Tudor and Stuart specialist, it's something that one you have can't to come es- to grips with. Don't one, you? one one can't escape. <laughs> you know, and you think uh, you think about the the sort of set piece execution scenes and the way in which Tudor 
traitors, the people accused of treason were executed. Mary Queen of Scots um, required three sort of swipes of the of the axe to cleave her off. Um, the the Earl of Essex was executed, had his head chopped off for his role in the in you know, attempting to overthrow the monarchy. Um, and it, there are certain cases where it, it spectacularly went wrong. Uh, for example, in Henry VIII's reign, uh, the Countess of Salisbury, who was a sort of high-profile uh, Catholic, very much against the divorce, you know, very outspoken about it, and was then accused of treason and uh, and condemned to be executed. And apparently, it took ten strokes. Uh, before she was actually decapitated, and if you're to believe the stories uh, that um, that sort of surrounded it, um, the historian and philosopher David Hume, for example, says that basically she she ran around <laughs> the, the stage, um, you know, refusing to make it easy, and so the executioner um, had to basically follow her around uh, with the axe. And, you know, swung at her several times until he actually, you know, until the blade met the neck and it actually sort of removed it entirely. So it can be a very sort of bloody thing. But perhaps the most famous uh, example is of Anne Boleyn being beheaded. And, you know, Anne Boleyn is a very sort of... I'm, I'm amazed how popular Anne Boleyn is. She's a figure, historical figure who has really caught the popular imagination. In fact, there was a, a period where no summer would go by without me supervising at least one dissertation on Anne Boleyn mm. uh, from very keen uh, Tudor historians at Plymouth. So she really, you know, she's really captured the public imagination. This is Henry VIII's second wife. Um, she's accused of adultery with a sort of series of of individuals at court, um, including her brother. So she's accused of, of, of incest with him. And she is found guilty. Um, I mean, my professional opinion is it is a completely trumped-up charge and that she is, a unfortunately, a political pawn who, who rose um, with one particular political faction and then fell with the decline of that faction and the coalescing of various sort of political entities um, that would benefit from her demise. However, what's interesting here is the way in which she is executed. And the men are hanged, drawn and quartered. So they're hanged, they are literally, so they're sort of sliced and then horses four horses rip them apart so that their their sort of quarters are sort of pulled around the town um but anne is sentenced to beheading and henry actually brings in a specialist to do this uh he brings in a, a, a guy called the known as the hangman of calais who's very renowned for um his particularly sharp sword and skill in cleaving off heads in one fell swoop. And he brings, he comes across and he, you know, he he does a very sort of clinical execution. And to give you a sense of the, the intensity of things at court in this period, I just want to end this little segment by reading a poem from one of my favourite poets, 
It's a poet called Sir Thomas Wyatt, who is a courtier, who is a diplomat, and he's one of the best. Uh, reading his poetry, if you read it, I mean, don't read it literally, but read it in in the sense of um, of a sort of literary output that was produced during the turbulence of the 1530s. This is a man who fell out of favour, indeed was implicated for a while in this plot against Anne Boleyn. And when she is executed, he's actually in, around that time, finds himself in prison. He then spends a lot of his time in exile in his country house, so his country estate. And it's there that he starts writing his poetry. So he's not writing it in, in, in court, but he's writing it when he's when he's elsewhere. And I just want to read you this this poem, um, which is called Who List His Wealth? Who list his wealth and ease retain? Himself let him unknown contain. Press not too fast in at that gate where the return stands by disdain. For sure, circa regna tonat, which is Latin and, and translates roughly as thunder rolls around the throne. The high mountains are blasted oft when the low valley is mild and soft. Fortune with health stands at debate. The fall is grievous from aloft and sure, circa regna tonat. These bloody days have broken my heart. My lust, my youth did them depart and blind desire of a state who hastes to climb, seeks to revert of truth, circa regna tonat. The bell tower showed me such sight that in my head sticks day and night. There did I lean out of a grate for all favour, glory or might. That yet, circa regna tonat, by proof I say, there did I learn. Wit helpeth not defence to yearn of innocency to plead or prate. Bear low, therefore give God the stern for sure, circa regna that. So this idea of thunder rolls around the throne and, and you constantly get these these images of, of Henry's court as something that is unsettled and the motifs of of hooks and 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 sort of visceral images are just sort of seep through this this poetry where he sees the people around him, his 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 close friends and, and acquaintances butchered during this reign and coming foul of a, a very sort of tyrannical king. So there we are, uh, the decapitation of Anne Boleyn. Very that clean. Wonderful poem. Isn't it brilliant? I think that's one of my favourite ones that you've read, James. Mm. And beautifully read as always. Oh, bless you. There is a wonderful, there's a wonderful uh, Penguin edition of the poetry, which I'm sure our listeners could find on Amazon. Uh, but there's lots of it on Lots of it around. You can you can also Google them and find them on the internet. They are be beautiful, he, and he's uh, he's somebody. If you're thinking about the history of of poetry, he's one of those canonical figures who translates the Petrarchan sonnets and sort of recasts them in uh, in the 1530s in in England. Mm. So, yeah, very good. Really, really good. Doesn't sound that old. Sounds a bit more modern. Lovely. That's probably my modern twenty-first uh, century voice breathing <laughs> modernity into it. The, um, the, the talk about about uh, Anne Boleyn was really interesting, and her professional executioner, who's brought across from France, and that immediately made me think of William Marwood, 
Um, mm. Not necessarily linked with heads. Maybe, maybe linked with heads. Who's um, he was the famous hangman at Lincoln Castle. Uh, and he was one of these people who invented the long drop. Uh, so he was a, a specialist in state uh, sponsored execution, and he's personally responsible for killing 176 people. Uh, and interestingly, said to uh, to haunt the uh, pub opposite Lincoln Castle. So it was all happened in the prison in Lincoln Prison. Talking off the top of my head here, and uh, which was part of the of, of uh, Lincoln Castle. There was a prison there, um, but when he stayed uh, the night before he was there, supposed to come for an execution, um, he stayed in this room in the pub and is. Uh, it is said, supposed to be haunted by his ghost. Not a headless ghost, James, and to do with hanging rather than executions, but uh, creepy nonetheless. And it does allow me to talk about something else. Um, I know about that because I was doing some filming last week in a railway arch near Brixton, which sounds really strange, but I was. Uh, I was doing a, a bit of a documentary for a Spanish TV company who are making a really interesting series actually on the the history of castles all over Europe, but particularly they're interested in ghost stories related to the castles, uh, which is how I came across that William Marwood one. But it also um, made me think about uh, headless ghosts. James, do you like oh. a good headless ghost story? I hate ghost stories. <laughs> I absolutely hate them. I watched Pet Cemetery uh, oh, as a teenager. What? Have you ever seen Pet Cemetery? No. Where there's a scene under the bed where the uh, the young baby, the young boy who's been buried in the ground, comes back, and the the old doctor um, uh, knows that he's uh, uh, an evil child, and the evil child. Uh, waits under the bed, uh, hidden by the bed valance, and then takes the doctor's scalpel and slashes uh, his ankle um, and then jumps out and gets him. And ever since then, I have not been able to walk past a bed with a valance on, Sam Willis. <laughs> so ghost stories are not my thing. Not your thing. Not your thing no. at all. Well, I'm, it's, I, I'd suddenly, we've got quite interested in them because it's remarkable how many of them are exactly the same. And there's usually <laughs> some poor... Lady, often female, James, very regularly female. A, in, a, a female lady. A female lady. <laughs> no, no way. <laughs> in some kind of coloured dress. Anyway, one of the uh, ones I came across is one I'd not heard of, and it was a castle I'd also not heard of, uh, remarkably, having done quite a lot of work on castles. It's Kidwelly Castle. It's near Carmarthen, and it's a fantastic castle. So I did a bit of looking into this because there's a ghost story related to it. It's one of these very, very important castles where the Normans come across in 1066. They try and conquer the entire UK. They can't because they get stuck in Wales. Um, and then it rem Wales remains unconquered until Edward I comes along. Kidwelly Castle, they built a beautiful timber castle there. Um, a huge fortress out of wood. And then over time, they realised they... Uh, were facing some fairly serious opposition from the Welsh and it became larger and stronger and more fortified. And it's right alongside um, a river, the the the, the Gwendrath, Gwendrath River. I hope I pronounced that um, correctly. I should, my mum is Welsh and she'll be appalled if I haven't. And there's a story linked with this from about a Welsh princess called Gwenlian Firk Griffith, who is... Um, usually portrayed as being a feisty, trained warrior, flame-coloured hair, fairly sort of traditional tropes of warrior princesses. And she leads an attack 
with uh, a Welsh prince, Griffith at Llewellyn, and they are attacking the Norman uh, who is in charge of the castle at the time, Maurice de Londres, and for Norman blood money, for the, the lure of a better life, this is how the legend goes. Um, Griffith at Llewellyn betrays Gwenlian's position and the Normans ride out and they attack Gwenlian. She's she's blocking a road, which is uh, the only road into uh, from which the castle can get supplies. So the Normans ride out. They ride down her son, Morgan, in front of her. She's dragged from a horse. She's taken to Maurice who, um, in, in aggressive Norman fashion, decapitates her. And it is said that her, 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 her headless ghost now haunts the walls of Kidwelly Castle. And uh, whether or not this is true is not the point. It's, rather, it's a rather good story, I think. And there is a fascinating history of um, law and legend related to castles and how and why it came into being and uh, how and why it is, uh, has existed to the present day. So when asked about ghost stories, that's always the, the, one, the way to get into it. It's not about really whether the ghost is real. It's, it's how the story has come to be, which I think is fascinating. And there, of course, is a much broader history of ghost stories that you can look into. And one of the best other headless ones, which I know about, is Washington Irving's Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Oh, yes. it's, it's so old. Um, if you read this book, uh, it, it you'd assume it was at least written after Dickens, and it wasn't. It was written in the 1820s, and it's something to really think about when you're reading Washington Irving, who come across him. Just appreciate just how long ago it was that he was writing. Um, the other thing I like about it is it's set in upstate New York. Um, I've been lucky enough to spend quite a lot of time there when I was researching my book on the American Revolution. Um, the struggle for sea power, particularly because Lake George and Lake Champlain at the top of the Hudson there are so important to uh, to, to the way sea power worked in the early stages of the war. So it's a beautiful area, and I've spent a good part of um, a good part of my early academic life there. The, the reason for this, why there is a headless ghost in American literature, is actually quite interesting, and um, it's been argued that the Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Uh interest in headless ghost literature is actually an import from Europe, primarily because of um, of what you, James, was talking about and how important decapitating has been to European history. And it's not just decapitating in the UK. There's plenty of decapitating going on elsewhere throughout Europe. So you need to think of America as this hodgepodge of different influences. Um, you've got ghost stories linked with uh, Native American traditions, and then you've got ghost stories coming from all different types of European traditions, and they come and they blend together rather fantastically. And the, the Sleepy Hollow one is, is actually a perfect example of this. Um, 
I just want to read you a bit about this. This is from Sleepy Hollow. I recollect that when a stripling, my first exploit in squirrel shooting was in a grove of tall walnut trees that shades one side of the valley. I had wandered into it at noontime when all nature is perfectly quiet and was startled by the roar of my own gun as it broke the Sabbath stillness around and was prolonged and reverberated by the angry echoes. If ever I should wish for a retreat whither I might steal from the world and its distractions and dream quietly away the remnant of a troubled life, I know of none more promising than this little valley. This sequestered glen has long been known by the name of Sleepy Hollow and its rustic lads are called the Sleepy Hollow Boys throughout all the neighbouring country. He then goes on to explain just how many ghosts there are in Sleepy Hollow. Some say that the place was bewitched by a high German doctor during the early days of the settlement. Others that an old Indian chief, the prophet or wizard of his tribe, held his powwows there before the country was discovered by Master Hendrik Hudson. Certain it is the place still continues under the sway of some witching power that holds a spell over the minds of the good people, causing them to walk in a continual reverie. The dominant spirit that haunts this enchanted region, however, and seems to be commander-in-chief of all the powers of the air, is the apparition of a figure on horseback without a head. It's said by some to be the ghost of a Hessian trooper, whose head had been carried away by a cannonball in some nameless battle during the Revolutionary War, and who is ever and anon seen by the country folk hurrying along in the gloom of night, as if on the wings of the wind. His haunts are not confined to the valley, but extend at times to the adjacent roads and especially to the vicinity of a church at no great distance. Indeed, certain of the most authentic historians of those parts who have been careful in collecting and collating the floating facts concerning this spectre allege that the body of the trooper having been buried in the churchyard, the ghost rides forth to the scene of battle in nightly quest of his head and that the rushing speed with which he sometimes passes along the hollow like a midnight blast is owing to his being belated and in a hurry to get back to the churchyard before daybreak. This guy is a genius. It's absolutely amazing writing that, the midnight blast. I absolutely love. So here, I think I wanted to point out that you've got, you can study this story, how it came about. You can understand the, the melting pot of different cultures that created different ghost stories in America in the 19th century. Of course, Sleepy Hollow itself takes a position within a much broader history of Gothic uh, literature, haunted literature, uh, going back to the castle of Otranto and Horace Walpole. I talked about that in my series of castles. I greatly enjoyed that. And then moving on to Edgar Allan Poe and others. So you can place this within a broader history of haunting, as well as trying to understand it within uh, within a story of, of European haunted stories and also headless haunted stories. So there you are, James, a bit about headless ghosts for us to get our headless teeth into. Excellent. And there's also a brilliant uh, Tim Burton film, uh, mm. Sleepy Hollow, with yes, one yes. of my favourite all-time actors, uh, Johnny Depp. Uh, and also, did you know Kidwelly Castle uh, was, in fact, in Monty Python and the Holy Grail? It's the first, <laughs> it's the first scene. Is it? I know. They, I, 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 can, yes. I can completely envision it right now. Yes. Isn't, ah. that, isn't that amazing? Well, I want to take us back to uh, decapitation, uh, and I want us to take the journey on. 
so what we've what I've essentially charted over these two episodes is a sort of cultural history of the early modern political head. So we looked at the body politic and we looked at the monarch as as head and we looked at resistance tracts which uh, d- which justify the execution of the monarch. We then looked at the execution beheading uh, of people and now I want to take the journey on even further what happened to those heads once they were chopped off well uh, in many occasions uh, they would be placed in their severed bloodiness on a spike or a pole this was a, a custom throughout the early modern period and in fact earlier um, because it was a symbolic warning that it gave to people and this this idea of decapitation you know you can trace all the way back you can trace all the way back to the new testament uh john the baptist being beheaded by uh herod um you can see it through people like william wallace you know all the way through to to the 18th century and 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 beyond but in the in the tudor period in particular certain key individuals who had their heads chopped off had them impaled on spikes on London Bridge uh, at the Stone Gateway on the South Bank. And people like, would you believe, Thomas More, uh, Thomas Cromwell. You know, these are two of the most important political figures in Henry VIII's reign who fall foul of him, are executed, and then as part of their punishment, their heads are severed. They are then put up their tip they're dipped in tar so that they preserve them because otherwise they would just um you know mm. they just sort of perish and rot away so you couldn't necessarily you know make out who these people are but they are you know they are they're there for everyone to see and there is a german visitor to london called paul hentzner in who in 1598 describes seeing over 30 heads on iron spikes at the south end of London Bridge. The city, being very large of itself, has very extensive suburbs and a fort called the Tower of Beautiful Structure. It is magnificently ornamented with public buildings and churches, of which there are above 120 parochial. On the south is a bridge of stone 800 feet in length of wonderful work. It is supported upon 20 piers of square stone, 60 feet high and 30 broad, joined by arches of about 20 feet diameter. The whole is covered on each side with houses so disposed as to have the appearance of a continued street, not at all of a bridge. Upon this is built a tower on whose top the heads of such as have been executed for high treason are placed on iron spikes. We counted above 30. Now, I want to talk finally about what happened to Oliver Cromwell's head. And this is a really interesting story. If you think Oliver Cromwell, responsible for the execution of Charles I, sets up the protectorate, the interregnum, dies in on the 3rd of September 1658 he's given a lavish public funeral at Westminster Abbey i mean this is all the sort of trappings of you know of of a effectively a state funeral he's embalmed the effigy is decorated with royal symbols um he you know it, i mean it's it's really 
you know, it's really a sort of elaborate funeral procession. Um, then what happens? He gets put in Westminster Cathedral. Um, he's, um, you know, in, you know, quiet, resting there. And then uh, Charles II comes, becomes king in 1660, restoration of the Stuart monarchy. And after the what happens then is that they decide to you know to basically deal with the people who have executed Charles I, who are seen as the, the regicides. These people are put on trial, they are convicted, they are sentenced. Uh in other words, the twelve people who participated in the trial and execution of Charles I were hanged, drawn, quartered, dragged through the streets, disemboweled while alive you know, dismembered. Um, however, three people are dead and they are given a posthumous execution. And included in these are Oliver Cromwell, John Bradshaw and Henry Ireton. And what's interesting here is the law of treason during this period meant that a traitor's body or their remains were at the disposal of the monarch. In other words, the monarch could do whatever they wanted. And, you know, in the same way that traitors' heads were displayed on bridges when they were executed from having been alive, what we see again is Cromwell being dug up. Um, he's hanged. He's drawn. He's had his head severed. Uh, and apparently it takes eight blows to take it off. And then it is placed on a wooden spike on a 20-foot pole and it is raised above Westminster Hall. Now, what's interesting is what happens to it then and it and its meaning changes across time. You know, when you think about Cromwell's initial burial, it's all about honouring the late protector. He's then dug up, he suddenly becomes a traitor. His head is then used as a warning to other traitors not to behave in in that way his head supposedly stayed on that spike until the late 1680s um it was apparently taken off in 1681 when for a temporary short amount of time when the roof uh, of the building needed mending but then it's put back and apparently it then falls down in a storm and then it has a really interesting journey after that. And the meaning of it changes. It moves from a warning to something like a curiosity and a relic. There's huge debate about whether it is whether it is real or not, whether it is, you know, whether it is a fake. But work has been done to establish that morally it is probably Cromwell's head. It passes through a number of hands, through different collectors. Um, it's put on display uh, in a, an exhibition. There's an advertisement in 1799 for an exhibition by the Hughes brothers who are um, exhibiting the real embalmed head of Oliver Cromwell. Um, it then ends its journey in the 1960s um, when it is buried in the chapel at Sydney Sussex College in Cambridge. Um, and there is a plaque on the, on the wall of Sydney Sussex College commemorating 
the burial of Cromwell's head, which reads, Near to this place was buried on the 25th of March 1960 the head of Oliver Cromwell, Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England, Scotland and Ireland, fellow commoner of this college, 1616. So there we are, the story of Oliver Cromwell's uh, surviving head. It's a wonderful one, isn't it? And um, there are very few actually like it <laughs> that actually could have that that kind of story with it. And you can trace the way that the history has changed. I very briefly looked at, at, at shrunken heads and something really interesting, as, as I've come up against here, is the um, Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, very well known for its collection of shrunken heads. But they've been taken off display recently. Um, because it's felt not to be uh, sufficiently sensitive to the Shua culture where they came from. These are indigenous peoples from Ecuador and Peru because so many people were standing in front of the uh, case uh, talking about the Shua as being savage or primitive, using words like gory, gruesome and freak show. And the Shua people have expressed dismay at the way that their culture is represented like this and the uh, i think brilliantly this is such a good a good mission the pit rivers museum is now working with shua partners to redress the situation considering other ways of displaying those shrunken heads so if you were um wanted to go and look at the shrunken heads at the pit rivers museum you can't because they're not on display because you're you would be arriving at a time in which um, the way uh, in which human remains are displayed to the public in museums is fundamentally changing. And I think that's quite exciting and interesting. So I think it's go. great. I think it's great that they're doing that. And I can, you know, uh, absolutely take my hat off to them. I think, you know, there is a there's a real sort of public uh, responsibility of museums to you know which which are basically institutions that educate and uh, you know and they have that role um to actually take seriously the values of the the cultures that they that they represent and and i think there's something you know breathing through museums and academia um certainly history uh, at the moment which is about decolonizing the decolonizing history the decolonizing the the curriculum for example is going through universities at the moment so sort of overturning you know what what basically are those kind of white male imperial sort of modes of interpretation and replacing them uh transforming them in ways that are that are much more much more open to analysis that empower um you know different different parties in that process and here you know what you what you need is a is a sort of the, the sort of rather than having the the heads on show for the sort of freakishness of them it's at what's what's more important is actually understanding how the under the meaning of that within those within those cultures where they were produced so yeah. no that's brilliant to see it isn't it and and the the result will be so much more sophisticated so much more intellectually satisfying um just it's 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 good all round well done pit rivers museum and i can't wait to see how you solve that problem um thank you very much for listening to our episodes we really like doing heads we've got saliva and patience coming up for you in the next couple of weeks which we're going to be going away and working on do please follow me at dr sam willis and do please check out my new podcast if you're interested in maritime history check out the mariners mirror podcast and you can check out me on twitter at james daybell and you can follow 
the Unexpected Podcast on at Unexpected Pod. Please check out everything we've done on our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. There are some fascinating articles, there's stuff about our books, stuff about our temporarily paused live show. And do please get in touch. If you'd like to support us, please leave a review on iTunes. It really makes all the difference in going up those podcast charts and allowing us to spread the word of this crazy way of thinking about the past. And uh, if you'd like to be uh, generous, then we have a Patreon page at Patreon dot com forward slash histories of the unexpected and any money raised there goes towards the cost of producing the podcast thank you all so much indeed for listening bye bye guys